Hello and welcome to the Harvard EdCast, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field of education from across the country and around the world. I'm your host, Matt Weber, and today we're here with the former president of Wellesley College and the former president of Duke University. And guess what? They happen to be the same person. Our guest is Nan Kahane, a distinguished member of the Harvard Corporation and author of the book, Thinking About Leadership, a topic we discussed with her from her Princeton office this past spring. My first question to her was, what was it that she could add to the leadership discussion that has yet to be discussed? Well, it's a good question because, of course, there's an enormous amount out there about leadership, and some of it is quite thought-provoking, and some of it is real schlock, things you pick up in an airport that tell you, you know, seven steps to becoming Genghis Khan or whatever it is. And I, I felt that even though there are a number of good essays out there about leadership, I wanted to add my voice from a particular perspective, having been the president of two fine higher educational institutions, but also having been trained and spent most of my life teaching and doing research as a political philosopher, I wanted to bring together theory and practice. What do you what do you say about leadership from the inside, as having been a leader and having some degree of power and authority, with the training of a political scientist or a political philosopher, because very few political philosophers have ever had any power, and very few people have had power have ever been political philosophers. So I was trying to bring the two together. Nan, I'm curious, was there ever a point in your career, whether this came in, in schooling or when you took on professional positions, when you said to yourself, I am a leader, that's, that's what I am, or was it always, they always say leadership is not position, it is action. How have you kind of grappled with that understanding? For me, it was a question of evolving into feeling that I was capable of leadership through exercising a number of leadership roles, particularly in college. Uh, but I never thought of myself as a leader with a big L on a large scale. I had never had the ambition to be a college president or a dean or a provost or anything else. But having done a number of things at Wellesley where I was an undergraduate, I would have said I was somebody who certainly had shown some capacity for leadership, but I never thought a whole lot about it. The main step that facilitated all this was when I was elected chair of the faculty senate at Stanford, and I suddenly realized that in order to carry this forward, I was going to need to think a lot more about being a leader than I ever had before. So it was perhaps at that moment that I first began to put leadership together with my name as something that was going to need to be a, a, a harmonious connection. Man, what was it about your experience at Wellesley, an all-female all college, that really kind of helped you realize that gender really is not going to be something that holds you back from taking on leadership positions. Wellesley, even in the 19, late 50s and early 60s, was a very uh, uh, enabling place. It was a place where all of the major work, all of the work on the undergraduate level was being done by students, all the leaders, all the econ majors, whatever it was, all the sports stars. So it, it, it never occurred to us, and a lot of the women in administrative and faculty positions were also visible role models and very dedicated to women's leadership. Um, Wellesley had never even had a male president, so as we would sit in the reading room and look around in the library, the, the, the portraits on the wall were all of women. So it, was a, it sort of seeped into our minds that women are leaders. And, and sometimes people say, well, you know, if you graduate from a single-sex school, you're really not ready to confront the world because you don't know how to compete with men. That's not at all the way it felt to us. It was more, look, 
I did this at Wellesley. I can do this anywhere. Man, were there certain things about leading at Wellesley that were different than leading at Duke in terms of how you sort of had to go about your business as a female leader from one institution that's very different than the other? <laughs> Actually, the most relevant way to answer that question is to start with Stanford, because when I was a professor at Stanford in the decade before I went back to my alma mater as president, I was I became a radical second wave feminist and I was and I also as a professor at Swarthmore had been part of a Quaker college and in both those settings there was an allergy to leadership and top down decision making there was a sense that everything would be done by consensus by collegiality we would talk things through until a solution was reached both as Quakers and as radical feminists dealing with setting up a center or a program or editing a magazine it was very rewarding and sisterly, but it took an enormous amount of time, and it was really hard to get decisions made. Nonetheless, when I went to Wellesley, knowing that as a woman's school with a strong feminist tradition, it ought to be possible to carry some of what I had learned at Stanford and Swarthmore into this new world, so that I had the sense that it was likely that my leadership would be more collaborative, more sort of feminist than had been the case perhaps with some of my predecessors, even as women, I, I think to some extent that was true, but I very quickly found that in a post like president of a college, you're going to have to make tough decisions. You've got to be ready to hire and fire people and take on difficult budgetary issues, set priorities, make decisions that are going to make some people very unhappy. That's what decisions do. And so I learned pretty quickly that you cannot be just nurturing and collegial and, and centered on the things you know are important for the institution without also being ready to take hard decisions um, and say, this is the way it's going to be after consulting. This is the decision, and we need to move on. And that didn't feel nurturing to people who were on the other side of the decision or the people who got fired. But I learned that whatever the institution is, you've got to be ready to do things like that if you're going to be a successful leader. So in the end, I probably didn't lead that differently from my male counterparts at other co-ed colleges. I'm curious, Nan, what, you know, you, you literally wrote the book on this subject. What is it that makes a good leader? And then do these traits differ amongst genders? Well, I think traits are only part of it, and you're, you're now asking a question which it takes me two whole chapters to explore. But I think what makes a good leader is partly traits. Some people have more innate capacity that makes it easier for them to lead. They're more likely to be identified as leaders, and this often includes things like showing good judgment, showing some degree of courage and ability to make decisions, and, and having enough confidence that others want to follow you, and having good ideas about priorities. These things we often see in children um, as well as in adults, and those people who display those qualities are more likely to become leaders and more likely to succeed. But leadership is not just traits. It's also skills and training and experience, um, trying your wings, sometimes failing, watching other people, learning about historical examples and good case studies so that you see where people have succeeded and where they have failed, studying as we do in my leadership seminar here at Princeton, John F. Kennedy at the Bay of Pigs and 
John F. Kennedy with the Cuban Missile Crisis. Same leader, uh, a, a small number of months apart, very different outcomes. And saying, okay, so what was the difference here? That kind of of rumination helps you become a leader too. And then, as Machiavelli would certainly say, in the end, a lot of it is luck and fortune, being in the right place at the right time. So all those things come together to make a good leader. Now, in terms of gender, chapter four of the book is all about the question, do women lead differently? And the answer is basically, from my perspective, it depends, or sometimes, or depends on the situation, or some women. I mean, it's not simple yes or no. As I said, it's a Ask with Forum, Margaret Thatcher and Mother Teresa don't lead the same way any any more than um, Jimmy Carter and Genghis Khan. So I think that you have to be sensitive to the effects of socialization on both women and men as boys and girls in terms of how they are prepared for life. But it's not the only factor that determines how you're going to lead by any means. Man, you told a great story at the Ask with Forum about, I think it was around tokenism, and you were a part of some sort of gentleman's club where they all had to drink gin and smoke cigars. <laughs> it was actually, it was port or brandy and cigars after lunch, wow. which I still think is a really kind of odd tradition for many reasons. But I was the first woman ever chosen to this quite prestigious club, and I wanted to, you know, sort of do what you need to do to show that I was glad to be there and that I belonged. And so when they passed around the port and the cigars, I didn't have any trouble with the port, although I thought, you know, it's going to be really hard to get any work done this afternoon. But I thought I should also take a cigar, which almost everybody else was doing. And I took a few puffs and I thought, this is too high a price to pay. I'm not going to do this again. And I was fine. You know, nobody down the line in the later lunches required me to smoke a cigar. I think they were a little surprised I did one even at the outset. They just didn't want to pass me by and act as though they thought because I was a woman I would be different. So that was the way it worked out. And in the end, I I did not smoke cigars. Nobody seemed to think that meant I wasn't a full member of the organization. And I learned that there's at least one aspect of being in this club that I really didn't like, but there were many other good things, which I did. Now, I'm curious, looking back on your life and also forward on your life, do you consider any point to be a high in terms of leadership? I mean, you've been in charge of two major schools. You're now on the Harvard Corporation. Is there a high or a point in terms of understanding your leadership or some sort of trajectory, or how do you sort of self-reflect on your role as a leader and your leadership growth? Boy, that's a tough question for me to answer because there's so many ways in which I could approach it. I guess the most, it's both in terms of successes and in terms of learning experiences on both Wellesley and Duke campuses. Um, there were a number of buildings that we built, which I enjoyed very much. I really like building buildings to provide spaces for people to do good things in, putting hard hats on and wandering through when they're still early in their construction. So I liked that part. I also liked, believe it or not, I liked raising money. I liked going to people who were rich and telling them, look, you're a generous person, you have ample resources, we want you to give to Wellesley or Duke, and here's why. I found that actually quite an interesting challenge because they were usually alums, they were usually good, fascinating people, and there was, I was certainly not asking them to give away their last penny, so I didn't feel like a beggar hat in hand. I felt like somebody who was basically, quote, selling a very strong product, saying this is important, we need your support, and I actually enjoyed that. Not always. It got tiring. There was a lot of it, but I enjoyed it. 
there were also times when I faced difficult decisions, things like students who were protesting divestment or the sweatshop issues at Duke. Um, and I think learning how to find my way through those challenges was important in the process of becoming a better leader. Um, but maybe in some ways the high point in each case was walking down the aisle of Duke Chapel or Wellesley Chapel wearing the robe and the chain and the seal of office for an inauguration or a baccalaureate um, or a convocation and recognizing that I was representing this magnificent institution and being both very proud and very humbled about that. And we're very lucky, lucky to have you, you know, as a leadership role here at Harvard, too. I'm curious, you'd also be a really great person to ask about work-life balance. You know, as someone who has a family but has also been successful professionally, what would be some tips or advice you would give to someone who wants to sort of have both? Well, first of all, it's very important to have as a partner or a spouse someone who is fully committed to this goal as well. It's hard enough to have it all. It's impossible to have it all by yourself or all at once. So having a fully egalitarian partner who is also a very distinguished political scientist, my husband Bob Cohan, who chaired the department at Harvard of Government at one point, has been extraordinarily important to my answer to that question. But we also have had We've been lucky enough to have healthy children, to have jobs in, in, the, in the same area, so we didn't have to commute, which was, you know, a lot of people do have to commute, and I know that adds a particular dimension of difficulty that we didn't have to grapple with. Um, we were lucky enough to have Bob's mother live close by when we were at Stanford and the kids were growing up, so she could come in um, to take care of an emergency or to let us go away for a weekend, and the kids became very close to her. I mean, there were a number factors that made it possible. Probably in the end, the th academic flexibility of academic life, being able to be wherever you needed to be unless you were literally teaching a course and then do the rest of your work, you know, late at night. And Bob and I never taught our courses at the same time, so one of us could always pick up a sick child at school or whatever it was. But the most important point, I think, was having excellent child care. And we were engaged both at Swarthmore and at Stanford in building cooperative child care institutions where there was a professional staff and a very fine one, but we as parents volunteered once a week. So we got to see our son playing with his friends and feel that we were engaged in his, in his care even when he wasn't at home. And there are not too many places like that anymore. And having fine child care has clearly got to be one of the most important answers to the question. Man, in your book, you give a lot of examples of, of role models who have been leaders from Queen Elizabeth to Aristotle, FDR. Who was who it that was a role model to you growing up as a leader or as a female leader that you look to for some sort of uh, inspiration for how to go about and lead your life and professionally? I didn't have a lot of role models, quote, when I was growing up for leadership. I had people that I admired, including both my parents, but not so much in terms of the leadership they provided, even though I think they were both leaders in some important ways. The first leader that I really looked up to was the president of Wellesley College when I was there, Margaret Clapp, who was an extraordinary leader, and in many ways I admired her very much and found her a role model. And then when I got to Stanford, Dick Lyman, Don Kennedy were both people who were 
both leaders I admired and mentors to me as I learned gradually what it might be like to be an administrative leader. So there have been people across my life, both men and women, but not a single person that I could say, wow, this was the person that really gave me a sense of what it ought to be like. You mentioned during the Ask With Forum about mentorship, and a lot of people now are coming up to you asking you to be their mentor. I'm curious, as a mentor, what makes a good mentor? What, what can you do to help your mentee uh, succeed the way they'd like to? <laughs> it's an interesting question because I hadn't spent a lot of time mentoring until I stepped down from being president and went back to teaching and research and wrote about leadership, and now I'm doing it much more often. And I do find it rewarding, but I wish I'd been able to do it more in the past. I guess the factors that I think matter, first of all, you need to get to know the person you are mentoring. You need to know their ambitions, their strengths, their weaknesses, their take on the world, so that you don't just give them cookie-cutter advice although certain kinds of formulas can be helpful for anyone, you don't want to just give them a standard framework without knowing more about their own lives and ambitions. I think you also want to be sensitive and supportive, but also appropriately and thoughtfully critical. You don't always say, hey, that was just the greatest thing since sliced bread. You do encourage them, but you also say, this is somewhere where you, you know, you did really well on X, Y, and Z, but there's something I think you could do to be even better on A and B. And then finally, I think you need to give them a sense that you're there for them. Um, and that means that mentoring a great many people is not going to be an easy thing to do, because if you seriously are engaged with people, there's a limit on the number of people you can be seriously engaged with. And yet you wish that the mentoring that you're providing could be provided for many more people. And the solution has got to be have more people step up as mentors who are bolstering the self-confidence, particularly of young women, giving them the encouragement to try new experiences, being there when they need to test the waters, um, and, and recognizing that we have responsibilities since we stood on the shoulders of other women and men to give the people who are now coming forward a sense of excitement about their own ambitions, confidence in their own capabilities, and, and, and a, a, a kind of a set of, of touchstones for their own judgment and their own decisions that they can test as they move forward. Nan, last question, and thank you again so much for uh, doing this interview. I'm curious, what is it like to not be in a leadership role? You've been a president of Duke, of, of Wellesley, on the corporation, but let's say in your local community there was a library committee and you were just a, a regular member or a volunteer of an organization. Is that is that difficult for you not to be in the leadership role, or is it very refreshing? No, no, it's a very sensitive question. First of all, I really love teaching and research, so setting aside how, whether I miss being a leader, I really love the life that I'm now living, and I have some opportunities for leadership in a variety of ways. But in the way that you mean it, in the years that I left Duke, in the first year I didn't miss anything. I was on sabbatical at Stanford, and I thought I was in heaven. The second year I missed my executive assistant, and I still do. I'm very bad at organizing my own life, and I wanted somebody who would keep my life in order, even though at the time that I was president, I used to resent those little green cards with every 15 minutes blocked out, which would now, of course, be a BlackBerry. And the second year, I missed the ceremonial aspect that I mentioned earlier, walking down the aisle representing the institution. When the time came for the ceremonies, I felt, well, you know, I used to really enjoy doing this, and now I'm just sort of wandering around. But the, only in the third year, 
when I became, was asked by the dean of the Woodrow Wilson School to chair a faculty staff committee to establish a new program for women returning to work after stopping out to raise their kids, something I cared a lot about and so did the dean. But the members of the committee were generally a little bit skeptical of this idea, with some good reasons and some that weren't so good. But I remember after one meeting, when the meeting had been particularly negative and almost everybody around the table was going, yeah, yeah, this, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. And when they walked out, I sat there by myself for a minute, and I thought, if I were president, I would have said, thank you very much. I've heard your views. I've taken them into account. Now, here's what we're going to do. And everybody else would go off and do it. And I really missed having that kind of power. So being in a position like the kind you described, when you've been used to being able to make the final decision, is tough. You're right. Lynn, actually, this has been such a pleasure. We really appreciate it. I think you're going to be, you are such a, a role model to a lot of our viewers, and I think they'll really enjoy this. Thank you so much for appearing on the EdCast. Thank you so much for asking me. Take care. This has been the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I'm your host, Matt Weber. Thank you kindly for listening. The Harvard Graduate School of Education, working at the nexus of practice, policy, and research.